Yeah, thank you so much. Great to see you. <clears throat> Last time I was in this building, I gave a very short speech. I said, I do. <laughs> this one is going to be a little bit longer. When I consider the fact that I ended up writing or co-writing an author about uh, a book about poverty and justice in this country, I consider it incredibly unlikely that I should ever end up having done that. It wasn't my inclination or choice, but there are a number of reasons why I ended up in that position. One of them is human circumstance, not in my own life, or because I came from a very secure and comfortable background. Um, but my own life changed very dramatically in 1978 when I went for nine months to work in South Africa in the middle of apartheid. And I went to a very rural location working amongst some of the most deprived people in the whole country. Traveled across the country, went to townships. I met political activists, church leaders, politicians. I met some of the poorest of the poor, and my Christianity changed. I came back to Britain, aged 18, 19, thinking that individualistic evangelical faith that I was birthed in four or five years before is wonderful, but I need to expand it to work out how this kingdom of God impacts needy communities across the world. And the second thing that's really influenced me is uh, very, very deeply, and I need to share this with you just, uh, just so you understand, is a, is a biblical conviction. Because as you'll appreciate, I'm motivated more than anything else by biblical convictions rather than human circumstances, although those are very important and shaping. The church is only strong ultimately, when it's guided by absolutely clear biblical convictions. Would you agree with that? On any topic. And the danger of the church is to drift away from biblical convictions because they're either inconvenient or we hadn't noticed them. And sometimes things that look a little bit inconvenient, we just marginalize them because they're a bit counterintuitive to us and we just drift away inch by inch from those convictions. But sometimes there are things we didn't even notice. And the issue of God's heart for the poor was something to my shame. In my early Christian life, I hardly really noticed because it wasn't in my immediate world. And I was guided more by what I experienced than a deeper understanding of the word. Now, I'll just give you the one dramatic biblical insight that I think you'll, you'll find helpful and you'll probably be very familiar with this. But I want to take you back to the very beginning of the church. And you remember there were 12 apostles. They were all Jewish. One of them betrayed Jesus. Another one replaced him. So there were 12 Jewish apostles. And they were led by Peter. They were based in Jerusalem. And at the beginning of their work, they were focused on reaching out to the Jewish communities in all the surrounding areas known as Judea, the heartland of the Jewish people, and a little bit beyond. They started in Jerusalem, and they started planting churches all over those towns and cities. And Peter 
oversaw that process. You could see he was the overseer. But within a year or two, there was a sudden event on a road to Damascus and another guy who wasn't in that picture, wasn't in that story, wasn't a believer in Jesus, hadn't met Jesus as far as we know. His name was Saul or Paul. He was heading to Damascus because he was against all these Christians and on that road to Damascus, he had an astonishing experience as he was stopped in the road. Have you ever been stopped in the road by Christ? It's an amazingly powerful experience. Paul, why are you persecuting me? And the long and short of that amazing story is that the risen Jesus said to Paul, right, you're going to go to the Gentiles. You're not going to go to your own people primarily. You're going to go to all the other nations. Fast forward the story 14 years. Peter's developing all these Jewish churches and they're flourishing and a bit beyond the Jewish perimeters. And Paul has got um, caught up in a mission into the Gentile nations, the non-Jewish peoples of the Eastern Mediterranean. He's off with Barnabas and Titus and his other friends. And he decides at one point, I need a conversation with Peter to make sure we're all on the same track. He's over here with his Jewish churches, I'm over here and it's getting far and wide into more and more countries and I'm planting churches here and there amongst all sorts of ethnic groups and I think we need to have a conversation to make sure we're on the same page. And in Galatians chapter 2, Paul describes this meeting. And this meeting has one very surprising outcome. That is the key I want to share with you. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 2, if you've got a Bible. The first three verses. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus also along. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them... The gospel that I preached among the Gentiles, I wanted to be sure that I was not running or had not been running my race in vain. In other words, Paul wanted to check. Had he made any mistake? Because he didn't have much contact with Peter. Different countries, persecution, travel, complexities, difficult to communicate. What's actually going on? What's going on between these two missions? Move forward to verse 6. As, those, as for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they, they were makes no difference to me. God doesn't show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. So Paul came to the conclusion, we're on the same page. Yeah, we're preaching the same gospel. Great. On the contrary, they recognized that I'd been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised or the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the circumcised or the Jews. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, or Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars of the church, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace 
given to me. I wonder what that right hand of fellowship meant. A hearty English handshake. A point of agreement. Yes, keep going. They agreed we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And in the last verse comes the interesting surprise. This is the one I want to focus on. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Now, why did Peter say that to Paul? This is the interesting question. Okay, you're preaching a great gospel, Paul. I love your theology. I love your presentation. You've got Christ right. You've got the atonement right. Substitutionary atonement, salvation, repentance. You, your, your doctrine of baptism is good. You're building churches. You're creating elderships. You're planting more churches. You're encouraging prayer and fellowship. You've got communion in there as well, Paul. 100% on doctrine. But are you remembering the poor in those communities where you end up amongst the Gentiles in those cities that we don't go to from, 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 from Judea? Now, why on earth would Peter even mention this? I'll tell you exactly why. Because amongst the Jews, if a Jew becomes a believer in Jesus, he or she has the Old Testament in front of them. And the Old Testament told the people of God all the way through the law of Moses that the widow and the orphan and the foreigner and the economically poor, four categories from the law of Moses, those four should always be in their consideration. So if you're a Jew and then you become a believer in the Messiah, you'll look around and you'll start picking up the needy in your community, picking up the needy in your new new fellowship. And Peter said, that's what we do. Amongst the Jews, that's what we do. We just do it. It's in the DNA of the Jewish people. But it isn't in the DNA of the Gentiles. Because they haven't got the Old Testament. And if you go to the Greek society, and if you go to the Roman society, what kind of gods do they believe in? They believe in capricious gods. They believe in gods who fight each other. They believe in gods who are angry and vindictive and selfish and judgmental and lustful. And do those Gentiles have a culture of charity in the Greek and Roman world? No, they didn't. There weren't charities. Did they have any welfare provision from the government? No, they didn't. In Roman and Greek societies, it's very atomistic. People all for themselves. Very vindictive. Slavery everywhere. Paul, if you just go and preach the gospel to the receptive people you find, who are probably fairly well educated like you, and you build a church in a town... And round the corner from your church community, there's people on the street and you ignore them. There's people in need and widows. That is not an authentic New Testament church. 
and as a risk to the authenticity of the gospel if we preach for individual salvation without seeing the needy and making them a priority. Can you see what Peter was saying? We do it naturally amongst the Jews, but the Gentiles, it ain't going to come naturally to them. You're going to have to teach them about the compassion of God and the mercy of Christ. How many people were poor in the Greek and Roman cities? What percentage of the people? I read a study on it recently. 50% of people in any average Greek or Roman city at the time lived at subsistence level or below. So that's like saying, here we are. You live above subsistence level and a small handful of you are very rich I won't point out who you are you know tiny elites you everybody here on this side of the room your life experience is subsistence or below can you imagine that that's the context that's what Economists and sociologists and social historians tell us about those places. Paul. Remember the poor. Otherwise the Christianity we're going to plant isn't going to fully represent the character and the mercy of God. Paul said to Peter, don't worry, Peter. I haven't forgotten my Jewish heritage. I'm doing it everywhere. And I will continue wherever I plant a church. We'll keep an eye out for the marginalized and the vulnerable. That's what I'm going to do. And that's what apostolic Christianity is. We could go on, but I find that compelling. Do you? These are the top guys in the New Testament church having a private, strategic conversation about what matters in church life. Now, the problem with the church in the West is the evangelical church is that we can be very true to the gospel but find the issue of poverty marginalized in our considerations of priorities. Because there's a welfare state, because it's relative poverty, because we choose to ignore things, because we don't see the lonely widow behind her closed door, because some things are less visible in the West than they would be in first century uh, Greek and Roman cities when everything was pretty visible. It was on the street. You could see what was going on. And so for the 21st century church, here is a great challenge in the West. If Peter was here today and he was going for, for a meal with Terry and Helen saying, 
And Terry said to him, you know, how's your church doing? Uh, uh, Peter uh, and, and Terry got talking about the church. I bet, I bet you what Peter would say is, uh, are you remembering the poor? Because that's what he'd say to anybody. We've got a little cameo of Peter's churches. Never heard anyone preach on this, but I find it fascinating. When Peter was traveling around in Acts 9 to his churches, he went to a particular place called Lydda, and somebody came and said, hey, Peter, come quickly to the next town. Because in the next town was a woman who just died. And her name was Dorcas. Acts 9 verse 36, you don't have to turn to it. Guess what her biography says? She was always doing good and helping the poor. She just died. Peter rushed over, was taken upstairs to a room where her body was laid out. And the widow stood round him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that she had made while she was still alive with them. Peter, here is a true disciple. Look at, look at what she's done. He took her by the hand, raised her to her feet, and he called the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. Now that's just a little cameo. That's a Jewish believer under Peter's leadership and apostolic leadership with the DNA of the Old Testament. She was always doing good and helping the poor. When I became the leader of this church many years ago, about 1994, leading for 20 years before Terry took over in 2014, I kept asking myself the question, Lord, how do you want us to replicate some of these principles? And God led us to working with the elderly. And I began to think, and other groups, we worked with addicts, recovering addicts for a time, did some work in prison for a time before the prison closed. We'd done a number of different things. But one of the things that really exercised my mind in those days was I noticed that the finances had been deregulated in our country by the government. And we, charge cards and things like that were beginning to become popular. Credit cards were just coming in. Elderly people here, like myself, will remember the days of the access card. Some of you remember that far back. If you're young... It was one of the first plastic cards, and it was described in the ads as your flexible friend. Okay? So I was praying about this one day, and this is what I did. I thought, how much money can I get on a charge card in the shops that all the shops were beginning to offer their own store card? So I went from the bottom of Pride Hill to the top, and I went into every major store. This was nearly 20 years ago, or perhaps even more than 20 years ago. And I said to them, apropos of nothing, if I want to take a card out with you, how much would you give me without checking my credit reference? Oh, 200 quid, 300 quid. 
400 quid, whatever it was. I totted it up. By the time I got to the top of Pride Hill, I realized I could have taken thousands of pounds worth of credit with no references at all. I prayed about it. I said, Lord, there's something going to go wrong in our society. I had a premonition standing on Pride Hill. I went to the office. I said to Sharon, go and find, please, in the country, somebody who's helping people in debt. I'd love to get started on that work. She found um, the Derby City Mission. David Elks and I went across there, and they were running something called a food bank. Ever heard of one of those? They called it a basics bank. And David and I went into this amazing little place in the back streets of Derby. And I said to David on the way home, that's what we need to do. And that's exactly what we did. And I give credit to David, not here today, I don't think, who for 20 years has been absolute stalwart of that food bank. This was long before the food bank movement took root. Then, of course, we bought the center then the Lord called us to plant a church in Halskett, especially to reach, in part at least, some of the poorer communities there amongst other missions, which they're doing so wonderfully today. Then we started Bread Trust working in the Ukraine in 1997, and so the story goes on, and many things have followed since. Then something else surprising happened. The leader of New Frontiers UK at the time, his name was David Stroud, said to me in 2010 in the autumn, I'd like to have a meal with you sometime. Always a dangerous thing when leaders say that when they don't tell you why. So we sat down and he said, I'd like you to start a project to help our churches with their social engagement here in the UK. And so I said, okay. He said, let's call it the Social Action Task Team for New Frontiers. And I thought that was a snazzy name, but let's abolish it quickly before anyone's heard of it. <laughs> so... We called it Jubilee Plus. And we formed a little team of people. And our church graciously released me to get involved in this, running training, conferencing, uh, and various other things to help churches all over the country. So I've traveled up and down the country meeting hundreds of people, thousands of people, and going to dozens of churches to see an incredible thing happening, which is God is moving the churches to really start reaching out to their communities more strategically than we thought we'd ever be involved with. And the other thing that triggered this was the financial crisis. I wonder whether you noticed that. 2007, 2008 seems like ancient history now. Ten years ago, our nation stood on the absolute brink of financial collapse. It was absolutely on the brink. You talk to policymakers, you read the biographies that are coming out now, you read the economic analysis. It was staggeringly close because of the uh, economic situation we faced and some of the policies in banking and governments, etc., across the Atlantic and here. We don't want to go into that big story, but it changed our nation in a way that you may not perceive fully. This is what happened. The government took on such a gigantic amount of extra debt, unforeseen, never, ever experienced in peacetime, we took on a spectacular amount of sovereign national debt and the in order to bail out the banks and stabilize the economy. And the consequences of that is that it started contracting government spending, putting pressure. And that pressure is with us today because that debt is even bigger today than it was then. That, de that debt is a great shadow hanging over our nation. It's a big shadow. It has many, many consequences and dangers, and I'm not going to speak about some of the others the Lord's been speaking to me about. That's another talk for another day. But one of the implications is the squeezing of 
local government finance, benefits, public services. They're being squeezed, and that squeeze is going to get harder, not softer, by the way, in the next five or ten years. And who suffers? The ones who suffer are the ones near the bottom. Many people are strong enough because they're not dependent on those services or those benefits and they can sail through and they've now forgotten there was a financial crisis. It didn't really make much difference to them because their equity was fine, their job was secure and they sailed through and the nation's forgotten. But we cannot afford to forget what happened 10 years ago. Led to benefits reform and some people in the churches seized the opportunity with incredible speed and said, this is our moment. Because up until that time, governments and public policy have been saying, don't worry, churches, we can do it. You're on the decline. We're huge. We're competent. Look at the competency of the government. It's getting better. Things are getting smarter. The more money we pour into things, the more problems we're going to solve. And that used to be the message in the previous days. That message, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, has gone. I don't hear it anymore. It's gone. The narrative has changed. The narrative is we've got this spectacular debt. I spoke to our MP about the debt and he said if you... He calculated the distance. If you put the uh, £20 notes together in a row and spread it out towards the Middle East, how far you'd get it before, before he, you know, and it keeps getting longer and longer. Every time I see him, there's a different country that our debt has reached if you just spread it out like that. That's me talking to our MP. Speaking to the chief executive of our local Shropshire Council the other day after he made a public remark about the incapacity of his uh, authority to deal with social care for the elderly in the long term. I said, did you mean what he said? I said, 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 I mean exactly what I say. We're in trouble. And so this is the moment for the church. Far from sailing off into the sunset, the church now is getting back to its traditional territory, which it had in the early church, and which it had in Britain for many centuries, of frontline engagement with people in need and mission to them. We're getting back, brothers and sisters, to where people wanted to squeeze us out from. And if you have a question about what we mean by poverty in our context, relative poverty as against absolute poverty, I haven't got time to go into it there. There's a chapter I wrote in the book about it, and then you can understand our thinking. It's basically, if you can't live viably in any society, you are suffering a degree of significant poverty. And there are many people in this town and this nation who are in exactly that position as I speak today. And that really matters. So what about books? I never intended to write a book. I always used to say I don't like writing, I prefer speaking. But somehow it happened. My colleague who co-writes with me, Natalie Williams, a member of my Jubilee Plus team, comes from a completely different social background to me. She comes from a deprived white working class background and she writes a great narrative and so I said you you write a second narrative in the book a narrative that I can't write this is the second book 
a church for the poor, the first one you can also see over there if you're interested. I haven't got time to tell you very much. I'll just tell you a couple of interesting things. When we look at the history of revival, one thing that's easily forgotten is where revival was strongest and most enduring, the leadership focused on the needs of the marginalized and not just numbers in church. You go back to John Wesley and the Methodist revival. It's built into the DNA, absolutely, fundamentally. And that's one of the reasons why the Methodist revival lasted for such a hugely long time in our nation. You go back to Charles Spurgeon, the greatest preacher of the 19th century, who filled a wonderful middle-class type church, the largest church in Britain at the time, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Thousands and thousands of people came to hear him preach decade after decade. The prince of preachers, the most amazing preacher you ever heard. But what you may not know about him is he formed a training college to train pastors, young men, and he said, I want you to go into the poorer districts of London. We've got to plant churches there too. And when the Methodist movement ran out of steam in the 19th century in terms of its social vigor, uh, uh, the Booths, formed the Salvation Army out of Methodism. They said, Methodism isn't good enough now. We're going to go into the East End of London and we're going to have a different form of Christianity. It's going to be basic. It's going to be simple. It's going to be for the working man. It's going to be for the prostitute. It's going to be for the drunk who comes out the pub. We're going to have a different Christianity and we're going to reach them. And a great revival followed the Salvation Army. Look at the Welsh Revival, based in the working classes of South Wales and, to a lesser extent, North Wales. You can read all about it in the book. It's absolutely fascinating. If we want revival, one thing that attracts the attention of the Holy Spirit to cause for revival is a compassion for those in need and not just a concern for the numbers of the church. And it's not just to meet their needs. It's that people may find salvation. I don't wish to embarrass him, but David Lewis came and prayed through the microphone. Uh, some of you know David, a good friend of mine who came to this church, his story's in my book, so I can tell it publicly. And he's vetted everything I've written about him. Came to this church in great financial need, in great personal crisis, received help, but then he received Christ. And he's now your brother and sister speaking to you through the microphone today. Now my dream is that these instances won't be isolated ones, but we're going to go beyond projects to seeing widespread salvation across different social and racial groups integrated into churches. And that is the dream of our book, A Church for the Poor. That's a dream. It's a dream for the church in the UK, and it's a dream I share publicly up and down this nation. And i just give you a little taste of it now. Now, brothers and sisters, we're on the journey already. We've been on the journey for many years, and under Terry's leadership, we're continuing strongly on the same journey that we've been. But there's further distance to go that we haven't got to yet. You've been fantastically supportive on this journey. You've supported many different projects, Meant much different work that we've done. There are an astonishing number of volunteers in this church helping in so many different ways. Everything from Eclipse to Barney Tots to the Food Bank to 360 to Open Door and beyond. We've just got a wonderful church who supported us on this journey. But we know that there's even more that God wants to do to bring people not just help, but salvation. 
community and wholeness of life. And I believe that's what Peter had in mind when he said to Paul, don't forget the poor. Remember the poor. If you just put it down as a second tier issue in the church, then you're deviating from apostolic Christianity that we started in Jerusalem. So Paul, make sure you do it amongst the Gentiles. So in the 21st century, I'm saying to us, here in this town, we want to get as close to that norm as we possibly can, care for those in need in our community, let alone in other parts of the world. Let's stand together. Let's have the musicians.